This is a Texas Poets Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Soros. Each month, we interview a well-known Texas poet to learn about the writing of poetry, the poetic landscape of Texas, and a poem written by another Texas poet. Today's program features David M. Parsons, the 2011 Texas Poet Laureate. He has been a recipient of a National Endowment of Humanities Dante Fellowship to the State University of New York, the French American Legation Poetry Prize, and the Baskerville Publishers Prize from TCU for an outstanding poem published in their literary journal, Descant. He holds eight writing awards from the Lone Star College system. Parsons was inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters in 2009. He has published five books of poetry. Dave Parsons grew up in Austin and, after serving in the U.S. Marine Corps, attended the University of Texas and Texas State University, where he received a BBA. After careers in haberdashery and advertising, he taught marketing and coached baseball and basketball at Bel Air High in Houston. After a short stint as a racquetball club pro, he entered the University of Houston's Graduate Creative Writing Program, where he studied with Edward Hirsch, Stanley Plumley, Richard Howard, Robert Pinsky, and the late Howard Moss. He received his M.A. in 1991 and has taught creative writing at Lone Star College in the Woodlands since then. He has four grown children and lives in Conroe, Texas, with his wife, Nancy Daisy Parsons, an award-winning artist and graphic designer. Dave's website is at www.daveparsonspoetry.com. Hello, Dave. Hi, Stephen. Dave, who are some of your favorite Texas poets, and what role have they had in your own work? Well, Edward Hirsch is probably the most influential poet to my work. And and though he was a Chicago poet when he came to Texas, and he was at the University of Houston for uh, many, many years, and then he left, and he's now uh, president of the Guggenheim Foundation in New York. He's been there about as long as he was in Texas. But if you look at the Academy of American Poets uh, webpage, you'll find that he's listed as a Texas poet still. Texas poets, other Texas poets that I admire are just almost too many to name. But I uh, have particularly enjoyed reading and associating with uh, the, the group of Texas poet laureates, Larry Thomas and Paul Ruffin and Carla Morton. Allen, uh, Carmen Tafola, um, James Hoggard. All their work, uh, when I read it, I'm, uh, I'm reminded of many of the, uh, the strengths of Texas writing. And, and in some ways, we borrow from, from our brothers and sisters in poetry. <laughs> You mentioned Alan. Uh, that's uh, obviously Alan Berkelbach. Yes. Right. Dave, each month we invite our guest poet to share a poem by another Texas poet. What poem have you chosen for us today? Well, it's almost a no-brainer for me. Probably one, uh, one of the most in- influential poems that I read when I was first decided to be, be a, uh, a poet was Edward Hirsch's Wild Gratitude. Well, let's listen now as Edward Hirsch himself reads Wild Gratitude. My name is Edward Hirsch, and this is my poem, Wild Gratitude. Tonight when I knelt down next to our cat, Zoe, and put my fingers into her clean cat's mouth and rubbed her swollen belly that will never know kittens and watched her wriggle onto her side, pawing the air, 
and listened to her solemn little squeals of delight. I was thinking about the poet, Christopher Smart, who wanted to kneel down and pray without ceasing in every one of the splintered London streets and was locked away in the madhouse at St. Luke's with his sad religious mania and his wild gratitude and his grave prayers for the other lunatics and his great love for his speckled cat, Jeffrey. All day today, August 13th, 1983, I remembered how Christopher Smart blessed this same day in August, 1759, for its calm bravery and ordinary good conscience. This was the day that he blessed the Postmaster General and all conveyancers of letters for their warm humanity and the gardeners for their private benevolence and intricate knowledge of the language of flowers and the milkmen for their universal human kindness. This morning I understood that he loved to hear, as I have heard, the soft clink of milk bottles on the rickety stairs in the early morning, and how terrible it must have seemed when even this small pleasure was denied him. But it wasn't until tonight when I knelt down and slipped my hand into Zoe's waggling mouth that I remembered how he'd called Geoffrey the servant of the living God, duly and daily serving him, and for the first time understood what it meant. Because it wasn't until I saw my own cat whine and roll over on her fluffy back that I realized how gratefully he had watched Jeffrey fetch and carry his wooden cork across the grass in the wet garden, patiently jumping over a high stick, calmly sharpening his claws on the wood pile, rubbing his nose against the nose of another cat, stretching or slowly stalking his traditional enemy, the mouse, a rodent, a creature of great personal valor, and then daling so much that his enemy escaped. And only then did I understand it is Geoffrey and every creature like him who can teach us how to praise, purring in their own language, wreathing themselves in the living fire. So tell us why you selected this poem for us, please. Well, I came to the poetry and the, and the job of trying to be a poet from having been an advertising agency, writing ad copy. And one of the things that I had to overcome when I started writing poetry was I had to <laughs> not keep repeating the product, for one thing, in my poems and things like that. But one of the things that I appreciate from having written advertising is last lines, last passages, sealing the deal, mm-hmm. <laughs> making the poem be an elevated piece of writing. And take the reader somewhere in the evolution of an idea. Transcending the moment. And this poem takes an ordinary experience and takes you through the experience that you could identify with readily. And it pushes you into another reality. And it actually extends reality. And for me, that's what a poem is all about is extending our reality. If a poem is not completely new and 
and takes if it doesn't take your head off, as Emily Dickinson says, then it's probably not successful. I come to the end of this poem, and that last passage is just knock knock me away and I, it's been with me ever since and I read this poem for the first time in the 80s you know the other thing about it is that ha, that has helped me with my own teaching and my own writing is the idea that you can take someone else's work Christopher Smart in this case someone else's experience and wrap yourself and your own experience within it and it elevates everything it elevates everything. And this is particularly valuable to young writers who, whose experience may be cliched, fraught with cliché. But if they are able to wrap a piece of art into their poem or their experience, all of a sudden it becomes interesting. And, and so this is, this is a constant reminder to me of how you can layer your own experience with the experience of others. And there's just something very intriguing about finding information that you didn't know before. I had never heard of Christopher Smart. I was very new to poetry. You know, anyone who has been around poetry for a long time knows Christopher Smart's story and how he was uh, this incredible poet in England that had won the Oxford Prize five years but was was had this religious mania where he would just wander around the streets asking people to pray. He'd drop to his knees and pray in the middle of the street bothered people, you know, and uh, they ended up putting him in an institution mm-hmm. where he wrote he wrote the poem that Ed Hirsch got the images from, and it's probably his most uh, famous poem, uh, Jubilate Agno, which is means rejoice in the Lamb in Latin. If you like, I'll read the, the short passage where you will find where Edward Hirsch mined some of his images. Sure, sure. For I will consider my cat Jeffrey, for he is the servant of the living God, duly and daily serving him. For at the first glance of the glory of God in the east, he worships in his way. For this is done by wreathing his body seven times round with elegant quickness. For then he leaps up to catch the musk, which which is the blessing of God upon his prayer. So as you see, some of the key words in uh, Ed's poem are taken directly out of Jubilate Agno. Now, can you imagine readers who are trying to make sense of this poem on a first reading, knowing nothing about Christopher Smart? What kind of a reading experience would that be for them as they go through this poem for the first time? Well, you know, they have touchstones there because everyone has had, most everyone's had a pet or been around a pet. They know that feeling. They can identify with Ed Hirsch. and, And then you have woven into that experience this other experience that took place in the 1800s. And that in itself is uh, the idea of this parallel experience, which in another 200 years, it could be the same experience somewhere. So I think that that's got to be a little bit compelling to even the most ignorant reader of poetry because uh, I think most people enjoy the trivia of new information and, and connections that can be made. So that would be what I would say about that. 
you know, I um, the fact that I actually have borrowed some of Ed's imagery, the idea of, of fire in one of my poems. In fact, in several of my poems, the whole idea of taking a, a word out of other poems that I've read and having it be a catalyst to my own work is also something that, that someone who's not read much poetry, I think they can see how that is a strategy that can work for anybody. Yeah. I agree that readers who don't know anything about Christopher Smart could probably figure it out eventually, but I think there must be a transition for such a, a reader, perhaps initially finding the poem a little off-putting or weirdly eccentric, at, at least some of the undergraduates you know, that struggled to make sense of, of poetry, but eventually it becomes clear what the poet's agenda is. Then such a reader would go through the process of fusion or aversion, perhaps even. I mean, kneeling down and praying in the middle of the street, this reference to sad religious mania, as as if the point is that this is a pathetic person, right? Mm-hmm. Sad mania in with other lunatics, wildly enthusiastic. So it, it, it sets up a certain expectation of someone who who is not an example to follow, right? <laughs> but by the end, yeah. you see, oh, but this is, this really is it. That's what it's all about, wild gratitude. Yeah. Interesting title, isn't it? Oh, yes. Uh, now, the combination wild gratitude doesn't come from Christopher Smart, does it? The word gratitude does. Right, right. But wild gratitude is Hirsch's concoction. Right. right, exactly. And, of course, it became the title of his book, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award. So, you know, I think um, that whole idea of the juxtaposition of words uh, um, that you don't expect. And that uh, at first glance might appear oxymoronic. You know, mm-hmm. gratitude, as I think of the word, doesn't have a connotation of extravagance. But wild gratitude is is a paradox. It mm-hmm. is the point of the poem. That's true. That's something that Ed Hirsch excels in, in, in finding language like that. You, you can look at his other, other poems and you find unusual use of words and and they usually are tied to some emotion, unlike like Wallace Stevens, where he does a lot of interesting words, but they're not necessarily emotional words. They're, they're kind more of, abstract. Yeah. Uh, Eds are almost always tied to the human experience, which is a very attractive thing to me because that's, uh, that's kind of – I'm a poet who writes a lot of uh, poems about everyday experience just like Ed does. And I'm always hoping for the kind of transformation that he creates in his – where he makes an everyday experience almost totally, almost like a duende, indescribable creature that is just like in in some kind of ecstasy of art, you know, I mean, pushing out against the uh, possibilities. I spend a lot of time reading about that whole idea of all artistic, artistic expression that becomes really successful being inexplicable it it's like it's in that gray area between reality and unreality that, that it exists and that's that's hard to know that you're even able to do that when you do it i mean it's hard to recognize sometimes i'm thinking of your poem about the canoe at midnight feathering feathering with deep the yes yes that came right out of an experience of reading about uh, 
uh, this this experience, this uh, ecstatic experience of uh, of art. It's it's one of the reasons that people, uh, I think, mistakenly think sometimes that artists have to be on drugs or crazy or Mm -hmm. whatever to do art, and that's wrong. That's not true. That's a dangerous idea. It is, and and it's not true. I mean, it's it's. uh, I've I've read several uh, books about that. I'm married to an artist, so you know, self help book. But uh, <laughs> I've read a lot about it, and uh, and most most really great poets are, you know, William Carlos Williams, the doctor, Wallace Stevens, the insurance lawyer. I mean, you know, sane people and uh, very sane, and yet writing is incredible in the in that in that area that I'm talking about. You know, Wallace Stevens really does that, expands what you would think the reality is you mentioned a few minutes ago the way the poem is layered mm-hmm. and that that struck me as a very interesting strategy here in this poem often poets speak directly to the reader and say one way or another dear reader open your eyes pay attention you know get out of your ruts mm-hmm. here the layering is very complex and indirect first we have jeffrey the cat showing christopher smart something about proper gratitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have Edward Hirsch thinking about Christopher Smart and Jeffrey. Then we have Zoe helping Edward Hirsch get the point. And now Edward Hirsch is sharing that with the reader. So it's, it's very layered and in some way perhaps even more effective in getting across the point. Yes, that's true. That's very true. Well, let's look at the final stanza because I have a burning question. It is That's Jeffrey a... and every creature like him who can teach us how to praise, purring in their own language. Why did he not write how to praise God? Because that is certainly Christopher Smart's theme. Why does Edward Hirsch back away from mentioning God? Oh, I think I think because this is not a religious poem. This is a spiritual point. It's true that Christopher Smart was praising God. At, at every opportunity. Right. But Edward Hirsch is seeing the spirituality in every living thing. So if he makes it praising God, it completely narrows the mm-hmm. poem. Yes. Whereas if it's just the praise for the living fire, it's you know, has no end. However the reader wants to imagine that. Right. Yes. Whichever divinity, whichever concept of the life force, it'll work for more readers that way. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else that you want to tell us about this poem? I guess I could read the poem that I borrowed the image fire from. I'd I'd love you to read one of your own poems. Yes, please do. (laughs) I was at the uh, Fine Art Houston. I, um, you know how you'll be... Walking around, looking at the paintings and in the queue, and and every once in a while you come upon a group of people looking at a painting, and that's what happened that triggered this poem. I uh, I came upon a crowded queue, and it was uh, a painting by Colbert of um, uh, Joanna Hifferman, who was a common model for him. But I was struck not only with the painting, I was struck with the viewers of the painting, looking at their faces, seeing what they were, they were experiencing what I experienced in seeing this painting. 
the humanity in this woman was, to me, very poignant. And, you know, I almost put as an introduction to this poem, you know, the, the eyes are uh, windows of the soul, you know, that terrible, sure. terrible cliche that's true. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Absolutely. But uh, that was also one of the things that informed this poem, this idea of uh, the eyes, the people kept looking at the eyes. And, uh, and I, you know, in the poem, you'll, you'll see it referenced as windows. Yes. So well, you've answered one of my questions oh, okay. right there. So that confirms what I was assuming. Well, let me read it. It's entitled Fire, which, to be honest with you, it came right out of Edward Hirsch's idea of the breathing fire, uh, uh, the same kind of element of life. At first glance, Joanna Hifferman appears to be brushing her stunning long red hair, hair filling the frame as it forms her looming intense face, where dazzling blue eyes blaze into a handheld silver mirror. As the other hand toils at fiery ringlets, petite fingers pulling gently from atop the creamy painting of brow. Above the magnetic passion of those eyes, eyes drawing the looks of the crowded queue, all gawking like the awed bystanders, watching some grand building aflame. Their attention keeps returning to the two small windows where humanity might emerge, showing its true face. Some emotion like fear, despair, desire, lust. Emotions they might all recognize within themselves or their outed longings. All standing like worshipers before some magnificent cardinal saint. Like Joan herself, burning, flaming, inside and out all present, blessed with fire. Thank you. I like the way you engage with the concept of the living fire in Hirsch's poem, and by extension, Smart's poem, with a more focused meditation on the living fire in a particular individual. But whereas Hirsch and Smart celebrate an almost mystical or pantheistic presence of the divine, which is readily perceivable to poets like them and cat owners, you make the living fire more elusive. Joanna's inner flame is hard to discern. Did I get that right? Well, that's true. But it's there, or they wouldn't be hypnotized by her. <laughs> that's the thing that has them. Yeah. Well, Dave Parsons, it's been such a pleasure visiting with you today. I look forward to reading more of your work. I understand you've got a couple things coming out. Uh, Reaching for Loner Water has just been published. Is that right? That's correct. And you have uh, an anthology slated to be published in April 2016, Far Out Poems of the 60s. That's correct. And uh, I co-edited that with Wendy Barker, my close friend and wonderful poet at UTSA. We worked on that for four years. As I often tell people, it's got almost every famous gray-haired, bald-headed poet in the United States in it. And uh, we are really proud of it and jazzed about coming out. We're hoping to um, to launch it at the Los Angeles uh, Associated Writing Program Conference in, uh, you know, in L.A. in April. Great. Best of luck with both of those books. Well, thanks so much, Stephen.
This has just been a real thrill. I appreciate so much that uh, you guys are doing uh, this program. It's uh, uh, it's something I think is badly needed. We need to preserve uh, everything we can about Texas letters, and uh, I think this could be a really wonderful thing to have in our in our archives for people to look at. Thank you, thank you, Dave. This has been a Texas Poets podcast featuring Dave Parsons discussing a poem by Edward Hirsch. Texas Poets podcast was created by Terry Jude Miller and is produced by Ann McCready at Inspiratory.com. Support for Texas Poets podcast is provided by Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. The music for this show was performed by Ed Freita. I'm your host, Stephen Soros. Join us each month for a new podcast in the Texas Poets Podcast series to learn more about the poets of Texas.